Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listen to me. I will listen now. I was wondering if we could just talk. You know, like have a conversation. It's just a Bradley conversation. Talk to me. Bradley J. I hear Bradley talking. Talking on BC. I'm all ears. Jay talking. It's a Bradley conversation. Easy WBZ News Radio 1030. Anytime you get a charismatic leader, you hope it's like Jesus and not Jim Jones. This time we're going to talk about Jim Jones. Daniel J. Flynn is in. I've been a guest with, of Dan's, and Dan recommended uh, Daniel to me, and I'm happy to have him in. Hi, Dan. Hey, how's it going, Bradley? Cult City is the, the book Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco. I'm mostly curious about Jim Jones, but we will get to his influence in the San Francisco politics and all as we, as we go through. You ready? Yes. All right. Well, remind folks who Jim Jones was and what he did, and then we'll go back to when he was real young, find out maybe how he got the way he was. Jim Jones was the leader of People's Temple, which was a charismatic, I guess it had the trappings of Pentecostal Christianity and sort of merged that with social activism in San Francisco uh, to become kind of a, uh, he became a power player in San Francisco. Things went south for him in San Francisco. He takes his flock of people, about a thousand people, go down to Guyana. They have a commune down there. Uh, they, they named Jonestown. And on November 18th, 1978, they all kill themselves at Jim Jones's behest, or more than 900 people did. And of course, this is the biggest you know, loss of civilian life in American history up until 9-11. It's probably the weirdest thing that has ever happened in, the, in U.S. history. Um, and I think to this day, 40 years later, people still scratching their heads saying, why did this happen? How did this happen? And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I think, you know, as, as an author, I'm curious. I'm a curious person, and, and, and that's why I wrote the book. What's the difference between uh, Jim Jones and an evangelist minister? Well, I think ultimately Jim Jones drops the pretense of Christianity. So um, the big difference between him is, is you know, most of the evangelists, like if you think of like Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell or these types, um, their political message is sort of on the right and they're more into the Bible. Jim Jones was not into the Bible. He stomped on the Bible, he, you know, threw the Bible down in, in uh, church. Um, he was into the word spoken word and uh, faith healing, sort of the trappings of Pentecostal Christianity, me meshing that with Marxism, um, that he was on the left, that you had um, pe you know people that were sympathetic to those political ideals coming to him, but mainly people coming to him because he was professing to, to heal people by, by laying on hands. I don't know that, that uh, the Pat Robertsons of the world or the Jerry Fall, I don't know enough about them. I don't think that they professed to, to heal people in that way. But that was kind of who he was. I, I guess you'd say he's a little bit more like David Koresh than those guys. Another difference might be that 
the evangelists seem motivated by money and Jim Jones was not. Correct. Yeah, that's that is a big point. I think a lot of people when they think of this holy roller phenomenon, they think these people are just out to make a buck. Jim Jones dressed in kind of shabby clothes. He didn't drive a fancy car. He lived very modestly. So that was not what it was about for him. Did he go from being sort of on the side of good to the side of evil or was he always evil? I think some people think that he went from the side of good to evil. I mean, he he did a lot of laudable things. In Indiana, he um, had the first interracial adoption. He tried to start what he called a rainbow family by adopting a kid from every race. Now, I think he probably tried to do that for public relations reasons, um, that he tried to do that because he was showing everyone how good he was rather than the fact that he was good. But he did, um, you know, he did stand up for civil rights at a time where it was a time and place in Indianapolis where it was very unfashionable to do that in the late 1950s. Now, it's, it's a little bit, obviously, a lot more fashionable to do that in San Francisco in the 70s. But he was doing things that were not um, always applauded by the local community. And I think in that sense, that's why he, a lot of people uh, flocked to him because they believed in those things, that he did hold out this good part, that they wanted to be a part of that. But a lot of baggage came with it. One was not motivated by money, but was motivated by, I think, power over people, human beings. To and I think I think you're going to explain later some examples of, of how he would break people down for gratuitously. I guess that was its own end. Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, uh, not just. I mean, give you one example, and this is this is a, a, about as cruel as it gets. Um, Four year old boy, they go out on a camping trip, uh, People's Temple, up to Oregon in the early 1970s, and I talked to a, a kid who was there and witnessed this. The little four-year-old boy says, I don't want to eat the food. It's gross, you know, like a lot of four-year-old boys that don't want to eat yeah. the, the food on the camping trip. And he says, you'll eat that food, and he won't eat the food. He forces the kid to eat the food. The kid vomits. He forces the kid to eat his vomit. The kid vomits again. This goes on and on with Jones forcing the kid to eat his own vomit. So that's the kind of character that we're dealing with, where on the one hand, he can go out and adopt a young black kid without a mother and father and people think, wow, this guy is a really great guy. And on the other hand, he can, you know, take a four year old boy and, and force him to eat his own vomit. I mean, that's, you, you, there's sort of two sides of Jim Jones and there was the public face. And then there was this private guy that was obviously, um, you know, did he get some sort of genuine pleasure out of that or did he genuinely, or don't not to be redundant. Did he believe he was teaching the kid a lesson or is there some, Real enjoyment out of seeing suffering. There's too many examples of him inflicting suffering on other people to not get the idea that he has some sort of, you know, Marquis de Sade kind of thing going on. Um, and there's, two, I mean, I could give you, and I'm sure we'll get into some later, but yeah. I just throw that one out there uh, to give you a little insight of his character and who he was that, you know, there was a public face and a lot of people liked that public face and they were attracted to it. And then there was this guy behind the scenes that you saw once you were a part of the church. Um, and, and the other thing about this, just an interesting thing, uh, the, this boy's father becomes one of the uh, assassins, Jones's assassins, who kills Congressman Ryan yeah. on the airstrip. You'd think if you're the father of that kid, you'd want to punch this guy in the face yeah. or you'd want to take your family and run. Yeah. The, uh, there's an opposite reaction to that, so a psychological reaction, where once you go through that and once you allow yourself to be abused in that way, you will pretty much do anything for this guy. There's nothing that he w couldn't ask you to do that you won't do because you've you've done that for him. You've that, stuck with him through that. Is that the cruelty equivalent of the uh, which syndrome is it where you love your captor? 
Uh, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Is it? Do you also love the person cruel to you? I think so. I mean, I think we hate our benefactors. Your mental, <laughs> your psychic captor. We're trying to please those people, and I think they're always trying to gain gain approval. I mean, they're all calling him father. And they're trying to gain this guy's approval. But I think there's there, there's sort of an all-in. You know, you play poker and you're all in. And I think a lot of these people were all in with Jim Jones. That they, they, was, they felt that they were too far in, vested in this guy, to turn away. Um, and, and there's sort of a, a, a series of acid tests where once you allow yourself to um, go for something, then there's, you know, that right. you, you keep going and you keep going with this guy and it all leads to what happens in Jonestown where they all kill, kill themselves. You know, it's interesting that people continue to follow someone who is gratuitously, repetitively cruel. It's not, and it, you can see examples of it today. People following a, you know, super cruel individual. Always interested in what makes these people what they are. Let's go way back and even talk about Jim Jones's parents. I understand the mother was a bit off. Yeah, I think the leaf didn't fall too far from the tree. Um, she, people in Indiana, rural Indiana, certainly thought she was off. Everyone there is going to church. She's not a churchgoer. All the women are wearing skirts and dresses. She's wearing pants in the 30s. I mean, it sounds kind of silly now um, that that would be controversial, but it was. She was a working woman at a time when a lot of women were staying home. She also changed her first name three different times. She talked about um, existing in past lives as really great, rich, and famous people. I think she was very dissatisfied with her position uh, in life in Indiana. When Jones was caught stealing, she would almost reward him like he had taken initiative to, to steal things. She wouldn't allow him in the house when she was not there. Very domineering woman. Um, had you know very different politics from people in rural Indiana at that time, and I think that probably rubbed off on her son. She, you know, um, despised her husband. Uh, they didn't have a very good home life. Uh, they were poor. I spoke to a kid who knew Jim Jones when he was ten years old. A kid, he's now in his late eighties, um, and he he knew Jim Jones because he was shipped off to his aunt for a while in eastern Indiana, and. He, there was a couple of peculiar things that he noticed. One was that they saw a group of blonde-haired, tall guys in jumpsuits, and immediately Jim Jones recognized them as German POWs. And Jim Jones approached them and said, Hail Hitler, and gave the sign. And the, the German looked back and said, Hail Roosevelt. And uh, the kid thought this was just hilarious. He's almost like the, got comeuppance at that point. The other thing he told me that I found interesting was Jones would often go to... Um, uh, started going with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On a church on his own, without his parents, without any sort of intervention. And um, in these sort of Pentecostal services at the end that say, does anyone want to come up and get, he get, get saved? And Jones would say, yes, I want to get saved. 
And this would happen the next week, and Jones would say, yes, I want to get saved. And now that you're only supposed to get saved but once. He loved the process. He loved the process. He loved the attention. And so at this point, Jones starts preaching. He starts preaching to neighborhood kids. He starts preaching to animals. Someone catches him out in the forest preaching to trees. He gets really good at it, and he becomes one of these child preachers. And if you've seen these kids, sometimes on TV, I get the impression that they don't even know what they're saying half the time when you have a kid preaching. Um, they're love just being in front of people. He found that out when he went to get saved. He liked the feeling. And you can't keep going up and being saved, so he became the saver. That's right. And he and he and he want and he tries to save people. I mean, even at not to skip forward too much, but even at Jonestown, there was a point in which everyone would come up and get a cookie. And he would personally give them a cookie. So he wanted to be seen as the guy who's sort of rewarding them, who's saving them, who's helping them. Um, Is that so, equivalent of a of the wafer? <laughs> I don't know. In in Jonestown, it was equivalent of nutrition, probably, because they were eating basically rice soup every day. And is that maybe why in churches priests give the wafer so they can be seen as the giver? I don't know. May I don't I don't know. I never thought about that. But I think with Jones, he certainly wanted to be seen as you know the the person who was helping everyone, the person who was the do gooder, and he gets into the ministry. Um, and he, he gets into something else. At Indiana University in in the um, late 40s, early 50s, he runs into some people, as you would on most college campuses, who are into Marxism. And that's very appealing to him. And he says to himself, and if you can if you can believe Jim Jones, he's not always the best authority on Jim Jones, but later he gave sort of dictated a biographical sketch of himself. And he said, I, th I thought to myself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? He said, the thought occurred to me is infiltrate the church. Now, whether this is revisionist history from Jones years later trying to um, pass him off to some of his 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 uh, followers as is you know cutting edge in his politics at that time, I, you know I don't know, but my sense is that that you know that was there from the beginning. There was this sort of faith healing angle where he would get people into his group by pretending to heal them of their ailments, and there was this other angle which was to sort of preach um, you know hard. Marxist politics in his services. And that turned a lot of people off, particularly in Indiana. Um, but when he went out to San Francisco, he found a more fertile ground for that kind of preaching. His, his mother was Marxist too, right? She was, yeah. So I mean, he already had that leaning. He, he did. I mean, he, he claimed that the FBI was harassing his mother. I don't, there's no record of that. He claimed that he was, you know, active for the Rosenbergs, that I think he said his mother got arrested at a Paul Robeson concert or something ridiculous. Um, and that, that never happened. So he made up a lot of stuff about himself to make it so, you know, that he, he seemed as one of these guys that was on the front lines in the 50s. He certainly wasn't. But I do think he had, you know, he had that Paul, those politics dating he back did a lot then. Self-aggrandizing lying he did i mean when he was in indiana he claimed that he he had been uh subject of assassination attempts they had people he had his own people shooting through windows there were times when people in his church um noticed that the you know the windows breaking uh the glass was shattering from the inside out and so <laughs> that tells you something right there so he he made up a lot of things about himself he claimed to be a native american um he claimed that you know people were trying to kill him all the time People putting glass in his food. There were all sorts of stories that he made up. That was he paranoid or was he lying? I think he was a liar. Okay. Um, Why, he, what would be the advantage of painting himself as someone who had people who were putting glass in his food? That he was important enough correct. to put glass in his food? I mean, at a later date, he has all these big guys standing around him as bodyguards. Yeah. As if, 
you know, they have, Ro- you know, Rosalind Carter and other big wigs are there without much protection. And he has, you know, dozen, half dozen guys standing around him as if he's the president of the United States. Okay. There is that, that self-aggrandizement that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, back to the healing. People were convinced that, that he healed them. How did, did he heal them? Did they get better, let's say, first of all? Well, I, I spoke to one woman, uh, Yolanda Crawford, who's now the head of a, a police union out in San Francisco. So she's a very successful person, despite her experience in the temple. They joined her. All of a sudden, Jim Jones learns all these things about her father and announces them at the service. And so she thinks this guy's a prophet. Yeah. The father had lost his job because he had a heart ailment. Jim Jones laid his hands on him. He starts running around the church as though a track star. When he goes back to a doctor, the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with your heart. The family thinks Jim Jones has healed this guy. And um, she feels that she owes him. She owes her life to this guy. And the family thinks that as well. Um, Now, did he heal him? I don't think so. I don't really believe in that kind of thing. But I spoke to people who believe Jim Jones had that kind of power. I spoke to one guy who, who, you know, Stanford, uh, advanced degree, guy is a poet, a librarian out in Oakland. Um, and I said, what, you know, when did you realize this guy was a phony? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, when did you realize it was all, all fake? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, when did you realize this, you know, that he, he was faking all these faith healings? He said, oh no, Jim Jones had powers. And he was very adamant about the fact that Jim Jones had ESP, that he had the power of prophecy, that he had the power to heal him. Uh, and heal people and tell them things about their life and their, their childhood. Um, this guy was not a moron, but he still believed that. And what my interpretation of that is that, well, Jim Jones, he must have had some kind of power, even of a charismatic sort. Yeah. What do you suppose when pe- people talk about charismatic power? What is that? Well, I think having a grip on people, and, I, and, and it, you know, it's a good question. What is that? Because it's kind of intangible. You know, some people that were just sort of attracted to like magnets, and I think Jim Jones had that kind of power. I think it, from a distance, people were very attracted to this guy. At a certain point, he's in California. He puts on the shades, as people do in California. He has kind of an Elvis look. Um, he has the sideburns coming yeah, down. Yeah, right. He's dyeing his hair blood, jet black like Elvis. People see him at a certain point taking the eyeliner and putting in sort of marks because he can't really fully grow out those sideburns. Yeah. So he's really, um, uh, the idea of looking good for these people, not looking flashy, uh, you know, looking like a man of the people, but looking good and certainly talking really well, um, that's, that's attracting people. Folks, do you remember where you were when you heard about the Jim Jones massacre, if you will? I, I, having uh, spoken to Dan earlier, he said it was 1978. I was in college, and I was barely aware of it in being in college. It, it didn't resonate like like it does now. So I'm glad to have you here. Okay, let's go wh- back to where we left off in his young life. Do you remember where that was? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he starts his ministry in Indianapolis. And in Indianapolis, at a certain point, he wears out his welcome. It's kind of a conservative With tent. the cops? Well, with they put him on the Human Rights Commission locally. He's buying time on a local radio station that still exists, WIBC, and he's sort of preaching. And at a certain point, that doesn't go over too well, and they pull him from the airwaves. And some of the local leaders look at him in a different way. One of his followers, an African-American man in his 50s, is having an affair at his direction 
with a white woman in her 20s. And in Indiana at the time, married white women in her 20s with kids. In Indiana at the time, this is very controversial. Um, Jones tells the woman to shave her head. Uh, she does this. The, the courts intervene, take the, the kids away from this mother, and um, Jones steps in, kidnaps the kids, goes out to California. And his journey to California starts with a kidnapping, just as his journey to Guyana starts with a kidnapping, you know, 10, 15 years later. I, it occurs to me, and we'll get to the, the part where he has political influence, and I, I can see why he could gain political influence, because if you have charisma, you have control over people, and politicians would want to get next to you and usurp those, the influence over the people. Kind of like... He's kind of like an the evil Billy Graham. <laughs> yeah, because, that, would be, that would be a way to put it. Well, everybody wants the endorsement of Billy Graham. They want to go and be with Billy Graham and get all those people. And that sort of thing happened in California, didn't it? It, it did. And I think with Jones, I mean, at a certain point, Jones will cozy up to anyone. I mean, Billy Graham, when I think of Billy Graham, he's sort of ecumenical in his politics. I mean, he he whatever president, didn't matter, Democrat, Republican, I think he pretty much uh, ministered to them all. And I think at a certain point, Jones is like that. But in his heart of hearts, he's, you know, he's sort of this hardcore Marxist. But he could be friends with the local John Birch Society leader. He was a bit of a chameleon. He could do, he, he would, he would, anyone he could get something out of, he would be friends with. And even people he was getting a lot out of, he could stab in the back, like Willie Brown giving him, you know, there was a picture of Willie Brown and he's giving the finger behind Willie Brown. Willie Brown did more for him in San Francisco than just about anyone else. And that's the kind of regard Jim Jones had for the people that were helping him. It wasn't always a two-way street. The whole Jim Jones thing is so awful. You almost kind of got to put it out of your mind. It's interesting in an acute way, but like a lot of acute things, you can't focus on them for a long time. It's just too awful, too weird. Well, I focused on it for 10 years oh, and uh, hopefully didn't go native. Did you? <laughs> Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. you have any bad dreams? You know, I... Th- I had uh, very bad experiences listening to the death tape, which they, they taped their killing themselves, 45 minutes of that. And every time I listened to that, and I probably listened to it 20 times, I just had this feeling, I hope it ends a different way. I want this to, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. You know. And so um, there is just a dark and evil feeling when you're listening to that. When you're listening to some of his sermons, there's sort of an evil feeling, and you wish you could say to them, hey, iceberg ahead. So Jim Jones kidnaps one child? He kidnapped a, a boy, brings him out to Northern California um, in Redwood Valley, which is, you know, north of San Francisco. You know, where they grow pot and stuff like that now. And um, he sets church up out of his carport up there. They buy a fleet of buses. They go around the country basically trying to recruit people. And they have some success in some of the urban areas, particularly Los Angeles and San Francisco. Question. He has no flock. He simply sets up a church out of his carport and has success. I mean, that says something right there. I mean, go ahead and out there, try doing that and see how it works he's out He's teaching for you. sixth grade as he's doing this. So. so he's got to have something on the ball that he can get a flock from his carport. 
Well, so they're they must be good. They're going around with these buses and they're going to inner cities. They're finding out things about people, and then he's revealing them prophetically uh, in 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 uh, in church. And people believe there's something to him that he has these healing powers. So a lot of people that come to him are old and looking to heal some ailment. There's a lot of um, when they come from Indiana, the 150 people who follow him from Indiana. This is a, a almost exclusively white congregation, other than the kids who he, he's adopted. They start the the look of the whole temple changes. It becomes um, much older. It becomes blacker. Um, the young people that are coming in, maybe uh, the, the, his message against the Vietnam War or for civil rights, that may be appealing to them. But for most people, they're they're appealing. The appeal of Jim Jones is that he can heal people, and that's why they're coming. I to, suppose it doesn't take too many reports of healing to have that draw a crowd. That was his secret. That's, yeah, and I, th- I think they all knew that was a secret. So the people who didn't even believe in that stuff, who were sort of in the inner circle and knew that when he was pulling cancers from people, he was really pulling uh, uncooked chicken. Um, uh, you know, th- th- they knew this. Is that true? He- this, yeah, he pulled un- un- uncooked chicken. And they knew this, but they thought, you know, it was sort of ends justify the means kind of thing, that they were doing this for the greater good, for socialism, or for whatever reason that they were that 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 uh, People's Temple appealed to them. Because they didn't want to go home. If they acknowledge he's a fake, they got to go home. <laughs> they got to go home. But they they weren't believe. You know, there were a lot of atheists sort of attracted to it too, because there was a heavy political message as well. And they thought, well, we can sit through this healing okay. stuff to get to the politics stuff. So ah, uh, he gets uh, popular enough to gain considerable influence in San Francisco politics. Yeah, I mean, the book's really about. Before the poor drank the Kool-Aid in South America, the powerful did in San Francisco. And this really starts with the election of George Moscone as mayor of San Francisco in 1975. There's a very close election. He wins by about 3,000 votes. And one of the major reasons he wins is because Jim Jones uh, turns out his entire congregation to solicit votes for uh, Moscone. Beyond those above-board activities... He bust in people from out of town to vote in the election, and people thought that he was, ta- you know, imp- improper electors were casting ballots because of Jim Jones. So there's so much pressure on Moscone once he becomes mayor that they launch an investigation to see if there was voter fraud that got Moscone into the mayor's office. And who is leading the investigation? But the the deputy district attorney, who also happens to be Jim Jones's deputy. And so, lo and behold, he finds that Jim Jones did nothing wrong and that Moscone's election was free and fair. So in with the in crowd was People's Temple at this point in San Francisco that Jones's own deputy is investigating People's Temple. And, and I think, you know, that tells you everything. Shortly thereafter, Moscone makes Jones the, uh, uh, puts him on the Housing Commission Authority in San Francisco. He becomes chairman of the Housing Commission Authority, uh, basically making him the largest landlord in San Francisco. And when you think about how he treated the, his tenants down in South America, that's a pretty scary thing that a guy like this had that much power in a major, great American city. So fit Harvey Milk into this. So Harvey Milk, like Moscone, um, you know, is, is looking for someone to help him out. He had run for office four times in San Francisco, and it really isn't until he hooks up with Jim Jones that he makes any headway. He goes from kind of a novelty candidate, because even in San Francisco at that time, running for office as an openly gay man, that was that was kind of new. That was not something, you know. 
Even in San Francisco. Even in San Francisco at the time. Um, and so jo- he hooks up with Jones. Jones is able to give him hundreds of campaign volunteers. They're, they, they, you know, tens of thousands of leaflets they're passing out in San Francisco on his behalf. They're writing about Harvey Milk in their newspaper, which is widely distributed. They turn their pulpit over to Harvey Milk, and Harvey Milk is addressing People's Temple. Um, so there's – Harvey Milk is getting – um, these very tangible benefits from Jim Jones in this kind of transactional politics. Eventually, he becomes supervisor with Jim Jones's support, uh, city supervisor. And Jones, I think, gets the better end of this deal. Because when things go south for Jim Jones, a lot of people are kind of running like rats, as politicians do, and acting as though they never knew him. Harvey Milk st- sticks by his man. So a great example of this is when they do flee San Francisco. And I mentioned before, it, it starts with a kidnapping. He takes this little boy, Tim Stone, who has real parents in the United States who have fled the church. But because they raise their kids communally, they can't get their kid out. Um, and Jones is claiming he's the father. And so he kidnaps this kid. There's a court order in California. Give the kid back. There's court stuff going on in Guyana. Harvey Milk writes Jimmy Carter, uh, um, who's president at the time, a, a letter saying that Jim Jones is a man of the highest character, that the guy claiming to be his father is a blackmailer. I'm sorry, that he's a bold-faced liar and that his mother is a blackmailer. Um, and that Jim Jones already has loving parents in Guyana, leave him alone, and that boy dies in Guyana. Why Guyana? Guyana is a communist Marxist country at this point. It's run by African Americans, and it's it's not majority African American. And I think these two reasons, because Jones has a primarily African-American flock, they, f- they would feel at home there. And Jones is, as the nation put it at the time, he had sort of drifted away from any sort of pretense of Christianity to outspoken Marxist sympathies. And so Guyana, they, they leased this land in 1973. Originally, it was going to be like a kind of like an outward bound thing or a place for seniors to go. And the people who I interviewed who were down there prior to Jim Jones one guy said, if I could be in Jonestown right now without Jim Jones, I would be there. That some of them loved it. And as strange as that sounds, once Jim Jones gets there, you know, there starts to be like six or eight hours a day where he is um, broadcasting on the, the megaphone. You know, they have an intercom system throughout the camp. And so it's got this real concentration camp vibe. When he's too tired, when the Pepsis that he's drinking every five minutes can't keep him going. He puts on audio tapes of himself. And so you're out there working in the fields in the sun a couple hundred miles from the equator, and you have Jim Jones barking at you uh, almost 24-7. And for the people I spoke to, I mean, they they talked about eating rice soup every day. Uh, One lady said, well, one time they allowed me to eat fish head soup. Another guy said he ate chicken feet. You know what chicken feet look like? Yeah. Um, that, that, of course. Yeah, that was the only meat that he had down in Jonestown. But they said the worst part of it was just the hectoring from Jim Jones on those loudspeakers 24 hours a day. All right, let's back up. I thought of this while you were speaking. The Marxism, did he really believe that? Or was that merely a tool for him to use somehow? I think he really believed it because it didn't help him get people right. into his flock. That's what I was wondering. It, it, people... Um, People, you know, tolerated his Marxist harangues in church for hours at a time just so they could get to the healing part. There was a guy by the name of Michael Prokes who he allowed to live. Um, and six months later, he brought the media to a hotel room, I think in Modesto, California, kills himself in the hotel room, leaves behind a note. And the whole note is about how Jim's, J- Jones was a dedicated Marxist and he knew that he was hurting himself 
by pushing the politics. I was wondering if he's If doing he only that. stuck to the healing, he said he could have tens of thousands of people in adoration of him, and I think that's right. I, I think thought that's maybe true. the regimentation involved with uh, Marxism might have worked for him. It might have been a tool, but I guess not. Well, in Jonestown, it may have been, and, um, uh, you know, they're down there. They're learning Russian. They're talking about emigrating to the the the, uh, the Soviet Union. They have Angela Davis addressing them by by telephone. They have Huey Newton addressing them by telephone. So they're really sort of indoctrinating them when they get down there. And there's no pretense of Christianity anymore. They have their Bibles confiscated when they come into Jonestown, and it's only when they run out of toilet paper that those Bibles are redistributed. And I, you know, use your imagination as toilet paper. As toilet paper. Let's go yeah. back to the move. Uh, why did they move when they moved and what was the move like? How many people moved down? Did they all fly down? How did it go? Yeah, they flew down. There was a Murdoch pub pub publication in San Francisco called New West Magazine. They had discovered some things about um, Jones that he was, uh, you know, pressuring people into signing over their homes to him, that there was a teenage lesbian who was beat up really bad for hugging a woman. Um, there were these punitive boxing matches that people were getting uh, you know, weak people were pitted against very strong people. There was a guy that changed his name to Ken Norton because he was so good at these boxing matches. And they would kind of watch him for entertainment, catharsis. But really, weak people were getting beat up by big, strong people. And Jim Jones would be laughing at the whole thing. Um, there was all sorts of just insanity going on, him forcing him sex on people. And so that news hits. And Jim Jones, who's very insensitive to others, is very sensitive himself. Yeah. And he takes off. So he's worn out his welcome. He's worn out his welcome again in San Francisco. And so uh, they catch on to him and there may be legal repercussions. He, he gets out in the summer of 77. They have a big rally at the temple with um, Willie Brown and Harvey Milk and all the big supporters are rallying for Jim Jones. And they leave, I think, uh, a day or two later down to Guyana. Um, and so from basically from August of 77 up until... Uh, late November of, of uh, 78, you have about a thousand people living in Jonestown when it's really built for a much smaller amount of people for really crowded conditions. Did he have it all set up or did they have to go down there and find a place? To what degree was it all set up? It had been set up to a great degree that could have accommodated hundreds of people, but you had people living in these cottages sort of stuffed in there. No electricity, no air conditioning, no television. Um, they had generators and things like that. Um, but it's it's in the middle of the jungle. So if you want to escape, hey, good luck. I mean, where are you going to go? Right. What you're going to run into the the leopards and all the spiders and all that. Um, and there were, you know, I think there was one guy who escaped, and there were some people that they allowed to leave in that period. Um, but for most people, they just had to deal with it, and they and and he dealt with them in in very harsh ways. I'm trying to put myself in Jim Jones's shoes, you know. He's now a kind of in exile, and that has to be a factor. He's got all these people down there. He's in exile, but towards what end? Here you are. It's kind of, that's it. Well, and they start At some point, you're going to get sick of that, and something bad's going to have to happen. In, in 1975, they start something where they have a wine test. Now, they're not supposed to drink alcohol or do drugs, but he's heavily on drugs at this point, and they allow them to drink wine, his inner circle, and he informs them that he's poisoned the wine, and they're all going to die within 45 minutes. I spoke to a, a couple people who were there, and one woman described... Another older, white, heavyset woman going crazy, someone pulling out a gun and shooting her three times. And she thought that this had all happened. It was all staged. And what that was, and, and so everyone finds out we're, we're actually not going to die. But the one person who freaked out over death 
they thought had been shot. And so the, the, the message is, if you freak out about this, you're going to be punished. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be made fun of. But if you just keep cool, everything will be fine. How much of this became because Jim Jones was bored? I think probably to a great degree. He came across a book called Revolutionary Suicide written by Huey Newton. And he, he glommed onto this idea. And that's really not what Huey Newton was saying in the book. I mean, the book was pretty idiotic to begin with. But it wasn't that Huey Newton was saying everyone go kill themselves in protest of the world. That's how Jim Jones took it and ran with it. And so they start doing these suicide drills. They get down to Guyana, and it's called something called White Knights. And he's claiming that maybe the Venezuelans are out there shooting at them or Guyanese Defense Forces or the CIA. And they have people sh taking shots, uh, you know, at— It's a game. It's a game. And people are believing they're under siege. And he's saying, look, it's going to get to the point where they're going to come in here and slaughter all our children. And so we got to either do that or we're going to all have to kill ourselves. And it starts going in that direction. Were the people on drugs too? No. Uh, people were stone cold sober, but they're dehydrated. They're, they're not getting proper nourishment. They're not getting proper sleep. They're overworked. They're in an awful environment. Jim Jones is heavily on drugs. What the heck is the matter with them where they don't say, whoa, here I am in this hellhole in Guyana with this weird dude. I need to at least try to get out. I mean, you can't, but they're still on board with all this. That's so strange. I think a lot of them were. I did talk to a friend of Jim Jones's son who um, at a certain point uh, they realized how dire the straits were. They got a plan. They went to Marceline Jones, Jones's wife. They said, look, we got to kill this guy. And she says, okay, you can do it when you come back from your basketball game in Guyana. The plan involved a shovel, a gun, and a pretense to bring him out into the jungle. When they came back from their basketball game in Guyana, it was to identify bodies in Jonestown, so they were never able to hatch that plot. Wow. All right. Can you talk about the, that last day? Sure. Um, Leo Ryan comes in on the 17th. He's a congressman from California to check out the welfare of the people in People's Temple. He brings a bunch of journalists with him. And initially, they're really welcomed and well-received. When he gets a note handed by a guy, a guy I interviewed, Vern Gosney, basically saying, help us get out of Jonestown, all hell breaks loose. Things change quickly. The mood becomes dark. The next day, when he tries to retrieve these people, um, and he, he just taking 15 people out of over 900 people, this sends Jones into hysterics. They try to kill, they try to kill uh, Leo Ryan in the compound. Uh, they don't succeed. He leaves with these folks. And on the airstrip with, with 15 defectors, you have a group called the Red Brigades, which was Jones's assassination group, and they kill the congressman, they kill three journalists, and they kill one of the defectors. Jones announces this to the people in People's Temple and says, we're going to have to do it. We're, we're not committing suicide. We're committing revolutionary suicide, protesting the inhumane conditions of the world. And people buy into it. Some, and, and when you listen to the death tape... There's one objection. There's one woman, very courageous, and uses logic against Jim Jones and saying, you know, you want to kill these kids? You want to kill the little ones? She throws every argument in the book at him. And um, Jones, you know, she's getting shouted down. She's People are trying to attack her as she's doing this. And ultimately, her argument is, well, can't we go to Russia? Can't we go to the Soviet Union? Because that's what he had said that they yeah. would do. And, you know, such were the cho choices in Jonestown. Either go to a very cold communist country or kill ourselves in the jungle. Yeah. And that was the weird situation they were in. But on that whole death tape, the only people that you hear objecting are little kids. 
that uh, and that woman and little kids crying and screaming and he's telling the kids you know telling the parents shut up your kids it's it's not there's nothing to this how long did it take them to die when they took the Kool-Aid. It all took less than three hours. It was a very efficient process. Certainly, it, it took a matter of minutes for the their deaths to, to, to uh, sink in. They bought, uh, you know, it was less than a penny's worth of, of cyanide for each person who died there. It was Valium, cyanide, and Flavor-Aid was, the, it was actually what they- Flavor-Aid. Yeah, Flavor-Aid. They used the imitation stuff. What's the experience of dying of cyanide poisoning? Is that- if I'm not mistaken, it competes for this oxygen in your cells and you're deprived of oxygen? I think so. It's a lot of convulsions, the eyes rolling in the back of their heads. Um, and, it, you know, the most grisly part of it all is they can't get, they're in the pavilion in Jonestown. They can't rush out of there fast enough. So they're falling on other people that are already dead. And so when there's initial body counts, they're saying maybe 300 people are dead because they're looking from the air. They don't realize that there's piles and piles of people rotting away in the jungle. Um, and that's why the body count went from three to five to, to ultimately 918 people died in the whole thing. Well, what do we learn from it all? I think you don't trust gurus. You don't trust leaders question authority. Uh, the ends don't justify the means. I think that a lot of people just sort of, whether they bought into the politics or they bought into the religion side of it, they would rationalize the misbehavior, the, the pure evil, because they thought it was for the greater good. And I think nothing can be for the greater good if you're really harming human beings. You can't, you can't justify uh, th- those means. Okay, and uh, the trail of Jim Jones after that day. Well, the interesting thing to me about San Francisco is all of the people who are aiding and abetting him. Um, you think about Herb Cain, who is his booster. He wins a Pulitzer as the voice and conscience of San Francisco. Carlton Goodlett, who is a publisher in San Francisco, who was defending Jim Jones after... Jonestown, uh, the most prominent address in San Francisco is named in honor of him. Uh, Cartland, one Carlton B. Goodlett Place, the city hall in San Francisco. Um, of course, Harvey Milk and Moscone, they die tragically nine days later. Dan White, a uh, supervisor, kills them. They have a lot of buildings named after him. Willie Brown is another guy, the Burton brothers. All, there was really no reckoning for the people who were backers of Jim Jones. You think about someone like Jane Fonda. She wrote Jim Jones saying, I want to be an active and full participant in your church. She was defending Jim Jones when he came under attack from the media. Jane Fonda, people will ask her all sorts of indelicate questions about going to Vietnam. They'll ask her about her facelifts. No one asks her, hey, Jane, what about that time that you joined People's Temple? Why did you do that? So a lot of people, people just kind of brush this under the rug. It was so unseemly and so just horrifying i think that people wanted to forget people were there was at least one person defended him after the fact how you know i gotta say that that the same cycle cycles like this repeat themselves and they're repeating today they things like that repeat themselves and there's all you know obviously that's what they had in jonestown if you the big sign that says if you don't remember the past you know santiana don't remember the those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it and i think that's a big lesson of jonestown as well you are a great guest Thank Probably, you I so much. Because you're also a professional broadcaster. You have experience. But uh, you you know how to tell a story, which is great. <laughs> Thank you. Dan J. Flynn. Daniel J. Flynn. Cult City. Now you understand why the subtitle is Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bradley. It's WBZ News Radio 1030. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.